This is an AMI podcast. I'm Kelly McDonald. I'm Ramia Amadin, and this is Kelly and Ramia. Live from the Accessible Media Studios, this is Kelly and Company. Entertainment, lifestyle, and great conversation. It's AMI-audio's on-air community, and everyone's invited. And now, the big man himself, Kelly McDonald. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, settling in for a Thursday edition of the program. Just a regular average Thursday show. Oh, little, little. It's here in my little crib notes. Not such an average show. This is the last one you do with us. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that's, it's not average. No, no. I was going to say, there is no average. They're all spectacular. Yeah, but today's that Thursdays. little twist on it. That's the, the last time you're here for a two-hour yeah. show. and Two, yep. A lot ahead. Uh, you got a lot of work to do to get ready. That's why oh. you're having this extra week. Out They're going to tell me that I had a lot of vacation to take, so I had to take them all. Oh, it'll be a vacation for you. Real holiday. <laughs> uh, so it's kind of kind of unique, folks. For those of you maybe who don't really know a lot about it, um, the show will be simulcast, still here, same time, on AMI-audio. No change. If this is your preferred way to listen in, we appreciate it. Wherever you listen in, it's wonderful for you to do so. Um, we will still be on here with the repeats, podcasts as well. The show name will change in January to Kelly and Rumya, and we will be also viewed on AMI-TV. Um, lots of stuff going on and behind the scenes, getting everything ready for that to happen, new control room, so many different things that uh, that we're all getting together and, and getting on side. So it's an incredibly busy time right now. Uh, but uh, today, being your last show, does it feel like a last show of Kelly and Company for you? No, I actually, <laughs> it doesn't because we know that there's a lot of stuff going on in the background. I'm, I really am technically just taking a week off and then we're coming back doing uh, testing and all these other things going on, even though there's no live show on AMI Audio, but it doesn't feel like a last show to me. It is a big sentiment though, that being said, that the yeah. next time we chat on air for real, like live is going to be in 2023 and it's going to be a whole different scenario. Yeah, different scenario, different things to do. Um, no more, you know, kind of like multitasking a hundred times to doing different things while we're doing this show. And because people will be able to Who look and says? say, hey, it looks like she's not focusing. Like, almost like she's just thinking of something else. Even, oh, I'm a she, pro. Oh, You'll never be and, able to tell. And the cameras won't show the, the hands working on the keyboard. No, none of that stuff. No. Right, no. right, guys? No, none of that stuff, right? Let's see what's coming up today on this edition of Kelly and Company. Fern Lullum will be sharing the story of John McFall today, a man whose ambitions, quite frankly, folks, are out of this world. Yep. We're also chatting with choreographer Tatiana Stefanova about an upcoming performance of The Nutcracker, a Christmas classic, of course, presented by Toronto International Ballet Theatre. And we've been publicizing a particular event on December 3rd. A lot of you out there know what that day is. So we'll be chatting with Manette Samaru uh, from the Alliance for the Equality of Blind Canadians about their upcoming virtual event for International Day of Persons with Disabilities. That'll be in hour two right here on Kelly and Company. So a little bit of stuff going on across the pond, ladies and gentlemen. Prince William's godmother has been embroiled in a racism row at a time when the Prince of Wales and his wife are on official visit to the U.S. 
Lady Susan Hussey resigned as a member of the royal household after she made offensive comments to a black advocate for survivors of domestic abuse at an event at Buckingham Palace. Witness Mandu Reid recalls the incident. And there was question after question about where she was really from, where her people came from, what her nationality was. And, and Gozi said, I'm British, I was born in the UK, but that wasn't enough for this person. This Prince William's office quickly responded by saying racism has no place in our society, as he sought to prevent the backlash during his visit to Boston. The latest incident took place at a reception hosted by Camilla, the Queen Consort. The episode is a reminder of last year's comments by Meghan, the Duchess of of Sussex in an interview with Oprah Winfrey. Meghan alleged that a member of the royal family inquired about the colour of her baby's skin when she was pregnant with her first child. Karen Chamas, London. I remember that. I remember how that blew up. And yeah. it's interesting, and I think we've run into this as, as people of colour, but also I've more so run into it being a person with a disability and the questions. And you're stuck because... Of course, I want people to feel comfortable. I, I'm pretty open to questions about my blindness and, and my circumstance that way. But there's just those times where it's almost assumed right to know the things, to dwell deeper deeper, and, and as if there's a reporter or a whole bunch of paparazzi uh, have you lined up against the wall asking these questions, that other t- times people just would say, you can't ask someone that. That's that's yeah. personal. That's none of your. Why would you pick that venue on a street corner to bother them with it, or the bus stop or whatever? Right. And yeah, shout out to the AMI TV show. You can't ask that because that show just takes all these questions, these inappropriate questions for people with disabilities, puts them in a box, and then people answer them, and you can really tell why why we don't do this. But anyway, going back to your point, I think that. There's the why do we ask these things um, or like you you know you can't ask these things, but you still do. And so the question, the deeper, deeper rooted question of like, why do we ask these things? You know, where does that come from? Do we not even realize how inappropriate or how ineffective it is for communication? I mean, the the former Duchess of Sussex, Megan and Harry, they have had to go through, navigate a ton in the last couple of years. They still are, if you ask me. I mean, books coming out, interviews coming out, whatever, but they're still really in the midst of it. And we've, I don't know, it, it with certain celebrities, especially the loyals, I feel like royals, we just go so far and almost don't even care. Like yep. the respect part of it is gone. Well, and, and certain questions like that, they, they have that sharp edge of you're faking. You're not who you are. And I think that's where we really overstep oh, yeah. a Or line. how could you yeah. in this Yeah, if you want to know, and, and that I love the fact of educating people. I think that's something that if someone sincerely wants to know something, there's lots I don't know about. And maybe I, I may ask a question. Uh, and and I, I always live by the saying, you know, a dumb question is an unasked question. But with that Ability and and the right to be able to ask questions comes a responsibility with how you ask it and recognizing when you're going a little far or for certain apologizing if you do go a little far. And that, I think, is really one of those things that sometimes people get really stuck with trying to rationalize out and and we can sit there and say, well, you you obviously can't ask somebody that. And and sometimes truly the person, for whatever reason, why not? Um, and I think it's a matter of keeping up on things around you and don't be so into that position where I have a right. I can. You, you got to wonder about other people's rights. Be concerned with how you're making them feel as well. And are you truly asking for the right reason? Because you want to learn, you want to know, 
and because maybe you're puzzled. And, and, and it's so hard because, Ramya, yeah, I know there's a lot of time we feel like we're supposed to be an ambassador. And, hey, they yeah. really do want to know, and we're moving things forward. And that's how it is. If we want to volunteer the information, if we feel it's empowering for us to be ambassadors, to be advocates, to talk about our own journeys, that's one thing. But it's another thing to be cornered um, or made to feel like it is mandatory that you share this with the public. Forget your privacy and everything else, you know? Yeah, definitely. And it's 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 a tough one um, because you certainly don't want to discourage people. Okay, folks, we'll let that go for a moment. And when we return on the program, Michael Fair gives us his review of Evidence 111, 111, where you can play as Chief Inspector Alice Wells in a debut uh, interactive volume game uh, from a new developer that we'll learn all about. Stand by. Well, I got to roll this out for you, ladies and gentlemen. You know it. Our friends from the Tripping on Air podcast, they're really into the holiday spirit. They're giving away a ton of prizes as part of the 2022 MS Holiday Gift Guide. Go to ami.ca slash TOA contest to review that list of prizes and enter for your chance to win. The contest closes tonight at 11.59 p.m. 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time. It is done. So get to it, folks. Please, one set of entries per day. (laughs) So today, just do it once, but get in there and get it done. Winners will be contacted via email and listed on the uh, Tripping On Air Instagram page. Ramya Muthan, Kelly McDonald, wishing you the best of luck there at that contest. And uh, I'm at the Home Studio London, Ontario. She's at the Home Studio in Toronto. Well, we've talked about... um We've talked about movies and holiday TV programming to keep us occupied during the holidays. But how about some other kinds of audio entertainment? We talk audio entertainment and tech with Mike Fair on Thursdays. And today, let's talk about taking a trip to England in 1985. You can play as Chief Inspector Alex Wells in a debut interactive audio game from a brand new developer. And this is very, very exciting. So, Mike, you're going to give us your review of Evidence 111. Is it 111, 111, 111? Yeah, Evidence 111. 111. Okay. So, my first kick at it today was the right one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so how'd you yeah. hear about the game? And we have something to do with this a little bit at AMI. Yes, you did. I, I didn't know about this one until you brought it to my attention, Ramya. You sent me, I guess they reached out to you. And uh, and that's, that shows a distinct awareness that is is all too lacking in the, the game development community. You know, this is a small company. It's terrific that they knew enough to reach out to you. And then after... I heard from you about it. I looked into it. And of course they had contacted Applevis and other places mm-hmm. as well and had, had really done a considerable uh, amount of work spreading the game. And they, they knew where to, you know, to, to uh, touch base with people to really get people energized and talking about it before they released it. So that, ha- that hats off to them, uh, whoever's helping them with that, or if they're doing it themselves as they're working on the game I uh, can only imagine the level of stress involved in finishing one of those things off. No but uh, it's it's wonderful that they've uh, done this. 
Yeah, and getting it publicized out there, just trying to know where to go, uh, really, really wonderful to them, too, for having some ideas of, hey, we could go here, we could go there. So, Mike, talk about these folks. Uh, what do we know about the company behind this game? Yeah, it's called Play by Ears. Uh, it's a small company from the Czech Republic, and uh, they're, uh, one of them is a sound designer, and he has experience working in movies. He's worked on some popular movies and uh, wanted to create a branching audio story. And so this was, I, I, it looks like kind of his idea. And then the, the company got behind it and they got uh, actors involved and uh, really were able to tap into some top talent to pull this off. Uh, so it, that's, it's amazing what they, they've been able to put together. Uh, with a small team, the other, I think another one of them composed the music and then sourced uh, music from other artists as well. So you hear some songs during the, uh, you know, the, the presentation of the game and it's, it's, it's really well packaged, well put together. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, it sounds really cool that they would dedicate so much of their time and uh, effort and resources into something like this. What's the story about in this audio game? So this game, you are Inspector Alice Wells. Uh, she is, uh, in, in, in 1985, when the game begins, uh, it, 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 she gets a call, a mysterious call about an incident. She was involved 10 years earlier uh, in an incident where, uh, and you sort of go through this in the tutorial of the game, uh, where uh, a 10-year-old uh, child, unfortunately, loses her life as a result of a police chase. And she's, uh, that mistake has been hanging over her head uh, for years and never really quite come to light. And uh, she gets a phone call uh, in, as the game begins in 1985. And it's from someone who clearly knows more uh, than anyone should about this incident in the past. And to avoid any unpleasantness, she is instructed to come to this hotel uh, this uh, in in uh, sort of out of the way on an island in uh, in England. So she sets off, uh, and and the game takes place at this hotel where she has to try and figure out, okay, how do I head off? You know, obviously this is this could end her career if she handles handles it badly, uh, and and things come to light uh, into the right people. So she wants this to go away, but she's got a splitting headache. She's got. Uh, the blackmail kind of looks like it's happening. And then a, 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 you know, a, a boy goes missing and uh, in the hotel. And there's this hysterical mom frantically looking for her missing child. And, you know, she, of course, can't just sit idly by. Uh, she, she has to uh, step in and solve this case as well. So it's, it's all about the choices she makes as she wrestles with, you know, how do I stay out of the limelight? And then I, how can I you know, make everything end as well for everybody involved as, as possible? Uh, and who is doing this to me and why, right? In terms of the blackmail, right? Because she's got that, that personal matter to solve. Uh, you know, why is this happening to her? And is this all a coincidence or is it all related? So lots of questions and a really good cast of uh, characters and suspects, uh, you know, in this hotel, on this isolated island. So very, very well put together. Yeah. Yeah. So how do the players interact with the game then? 
Well, the controls are really simple. Uh, you don't need voiceover, so you can turn that off as, uh, as you begin the game. And you can flick up with one finger in the main menu to activate visually impaired help mode. And the game will then just talk all the way through. Every, there are uh, recorded voice prompts and, uh, and menu options and things all the way through. So you swipe up with two fingers if you want to access the help for, to hear the options, how to control things. You pause by uh, swiping down with two fingers. Uh, you can skip scenes you've already heard by clicking right with two fingers uh, and uh, have a, a, a segment repeated by sw swiping left with two fingers. And to make choices in the game when you're given options, you swipe right for the first one, down for the or left, right for the first, left for the second, down for the third. When the, the three, sometimes there are three options. Other times it must be two, and you do that with one finger for those swipes. So it, the controls are really, really easy and uh, very easy to master. And it, it, the game was made from the word go, right from the start, to be accessible to uh, blind people as well as for sighted people. It was made for everybody, not just blind people. So they say, you know, give your eyes a rest. All that that sighted people would see are very simple controls. So there's there's no they don't get any advantage from looking, and uh, so we're all on a, on an even uh, playing field. Okay, I mean it's really uh, it does sound like they've made it as intuitive as possible without having to use all the things that you're used to, you know, screen readers and swiping gestures and um, all that stuff. Otherwise, and it's I appreciate hearing that aspect of it. How long does it take to actually play the game? Well, it, it basically runs about an hour per playthrough, and there are 10 different endings to the story, depending on your choices going through the game. It keeps track, and you will get, you know, if you make different choices, you will lead to a different ending. So I've, I've uh, gone, yeah, played it about three times, so about uh, a little less than three hours, I guess, in that range, because you can skip, if you've heard dialogue before, you use that uh, two-finger swipe right to skip a scene, and get right to the next choice point. So, uh, you know, most players, I would say, will get at least, you know, a good three hours, uh, possibly as many as five, if you, if you really pursue a lot of the different endings. Uh, you know, I, I don't know that anyone's going to have, you know, it, it wears thin after a while because you're going, going over so much of the same ground uh, for chunks of the game. So, But you probably could, you know, play it, you know, four times and, you know, have enough different things happen to, to maintain engagement, maintain interest. Okay, man. All right. It's, it's interesting, that's for sure. And, yeah, I think those are the things kind of you watch out for when you're getting into something like this. But, okay. How was the Sound of Music? Sound of Music were top-notch. These people know what they're doing in terms of that. And both uh, the sound was really binaural audio so you get that surround effect where it goes you want to play this game wearing earbuds or headphones because you, you it makes full use of that the storm sounds are particularly noteworthy but everything when they move around the rooms when they open doors anything like that you know when you hear things behind doors that are closed right it all sounds like it like it would like it sounds natural like you're standing there listening so they really really good job with that music kind of heightens the mood, uh, they have cues sort of in the game like a movie would, so you get that sense of suspense mounting, and, and you know, especially when you're dealing with the possibility that the hotel might be haunted and so forth. So uh, a lot of really good uh, sound work and music. 
Yeah. And how about the acting? We have to follow up about that too. Absolutely. The acting is top notch. Again, they had Zoe Robbins who was in, uh, uh, she was uh, Alice Wells, the lead character, and she was in the Shannara Chronicles uh, as, as well as Wheel of Time. So a couple of big series on streaming that you might have heard over the pandemic. You might hear familiar voices. Rosamund Pike uh, is another popular actor that got involved. Like a lot of that uh, happened because they were approaching this with accessibility in mind, actually. Apparently the actors really clued in on that and uh, they were able to attract uh, like really you know, talent who went well above what they had to. And uh, so they, they did wonderful performances there. Uh, those two really stole the show. Uh, but then you have the actor who played uh, the chef, Mr. Rogers, who I thought was just brilliant too. Uh, I can't remember his name, but he he did a really good job. So listen out for him, the angry chef. Uh, <laughs> you'll have a good laugh at him. Uh, so a lot of good acting there. And uh, they, they all took their parts seriously. And uh, just, just a really smoothly delivered game. There were no little glitches or anything like that. It was very, very well put together on that on those terms. And then background with all that 80s music, I'm sure it gives you that nice feel for it. Yes, exactly. Yep, you really do get that sense of location and where you are. And the music never trumps story or sound. It's just there when it needs to be. So yes. very well mixed and balanced. That's the, uh, that's the decade where mainly music, pop, and whatever top hits were really mixed into a lot of TV shows. So I'm sure it'll give you that feel that way, Michael. Was the game worth the price? I would say, you know, go in with the right expectations. This is an, this is an interactive movie. Okay, so if, if you go in with that mindset, it's about four ninety nine US or the equivalent. So I paid about six ninety nine uh, for my copy, and it's like you'd pay for like renting a movie. See, I would say you're getting the same amount of entertainment in a totally accessible, audible way that is interactive. So if you think about it that way, I'd say yes. Now, if you're as jaded as someone like me who's played everything under the sun you might wish that they had put more, like the game, that's the only thing in the game is making choices. There's no other elements, no inventory management, no combat, no puzzle solving, really uh, anything like that. Um, so in that sense, you, you play through it a few times, you get to the endings that you really care about, and you get to that point of saturation where there's really no point in playing it again. So it does, it wears thin after a while, but your first, at least a couple of experiences are going to be really, you know, top, top notch uh, in terms of just the presentation and the sound. So if you like mm -hmm. a good police procedural, uh, you know, you, you're going to like this game. I really like that way of thinking about it, Mike, as something you would pay for in another sense and then putting that money towards this kind of audio entertainment, especially for the, the kind of work that they've put into it. Mike, thanks for featuring it. Awesome review. Absolutely. It was a fun thing to review and, and certainly pass some time over the weekend, that's for sure. Definitely. We'll see if he tries all 10 endings, though. Mike Fair joining us on Thursdays for audio entertainment and tech highlights. That was Evidence 111. Up next, folks, Fern Lullum shares the story of John McFall, a man whose ambitions are out of this world. We'll find out how and in what way in two minutes.
Well, I told you, AMI Audio is the place for podcasts, ladies and gentlemen. You can just do a search for AMI Audio Podcast and check out a plethora of content. We mentioned the other day when Mary was on the show, Kitchen, Kitchen Confession was out on Wednesday with its newest episode. Today, funny enough, and you'll see why in a moment, Into You uh, drops so you can check that out. Probably out there available to you already. And Friday, Low Vision Moments is made available to you. All these AMI-audio podcasts available to you, so uh, use your favorite podcatcher and enjoy. Kelly McDonald here with Rumya Muthan. We're hosts of the program, and uh, speaking of Into You, we're joined by our friend from the UK, Fern Lullum for UK Disability Highlights, and today, wow, we're out of the world here, man. We are Gandhi. Uh, we're talking today about a disabled person from the UK whose ambitions, Fern, are literally out of this world. Yes, indeed. We are. Biggest fan of Interview here, by the way. Just just say that. Um, I figured yes, as such. <laughs> fan club president. <laughs> I thought you were going to say you're even bigger than Kelly. What a shame. But, uh... yeah, that's, that's, uh, <laughs> anyway, well, I was thinking more, thinking. hey, we have the fan club president right here. That's what we have on the show. Yes, it's very true. You are graced with her presence. Uh, so anyway, enough about me. Today's segment is all about John McFall. Um, and as you mentioned, Kelly, he is a very ambitious guy indeed. Being a Paralympian and a skilled medical professional just isn't quite enough for him. Wow. Okay. Uh, I feel like we're on a countdown to something pretty darn spectacular here. So be a star. <laughs> Tell us what you're going to launch into. Well, I'm over the moon that you've given me the space to talk about John today because the European Space Agency, or ESA, have just announced him as the world's first disabled astronaut. Wow. I mean, I didn't see that coming. So tell us more about <laughs> John McFall. This is incredible. Just packing in those puns today. Yeah, so no, John kidding. was born in <laughs> he was born in Surrey here in England, and he was a keen runner and hockey player from an early age, not like myself at all. Like many people, he acquired his disability as a young adult. So he wasn't born with it, but it, it came on as a young adult. So can we ask what happened? Yes, he was involved in a motorcycle accident when he was 12 years old, very sadly, and this resulted in the amputation of his right leg. But it's clear that this would not stop John from going on to live an amazing life. And based on what I've just said to you, that's obvious. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned in your introduction that he's a Paralympian, so he stayed involved mm -hmm. with sports, I'm assuming, after his accident. Yes. And once he was out of hospital, he was soon mountain biking and climbing again. There is no stopping this man. Wow. Good for him. And that's what we love to hear, that people are able to do um, what they really enjoy, find their ways to be able to do it. And it's a lot of work sometimes, uh, especially just to get yourself back on doing it. Tell us about his journey to becoming a Paralympian. Well, he started training as a sprinter. And he took a bronze medal in his first international competition. And this was for a 200-meter race in 2005. 200-meter sprinting. I mean, that's, it makes me tired just thinking about it. Um, but yeah. he achieved lots of other international sprinting success before finally making it to the 2008 Paralympics in Beijing. 
Oh, excellent. And how did things go in Beijing? Well, he took the bronze medal in the 100 meters. And the gold medal went to Earl Connor. Guess any guesses where Earl Connor is from? Mm. Mm. No. Canada. Let's just say Canada. Canada. Name's familiar. <laughs> you know, it's it's not really a common name. Uh, we have a picture now of an ambitious, quite talented man. Tell us about the giant leap, and it's quite a leap, like one of those ones on the moon where you bounce and you go for quite a ways. Uh, the giant leap <laughs> to becoming an astronaut now. Yes. So John says that although he has a great interest in science, he didn't think that he would pass the medical selection process as an amputee to actually be an astronaut. Right. And then what changed to make him go through with it anyway? Well, this is the first astronaut recruitment exercise run by the European Space Agency for around 13 years. So it seems that they're trying to achieve greater diversity now these days, which is great. Um, I think they're taking a broader view of the qualities needed to be an astronaut, so not just focusing so much on the physical side. Mm. Okay. And I've heard that. I've heard that as as things are that I guess now there may feel there's more potential in different abilities being a part of the programs uh, out there around the world, but some more than others. So can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, there's kind of a stereotype, I suppose, um, of an astronaut needing to have been in the Air Force and having that type of experience and that kind of capabilities. Um, but now there seems to be this growing appreciation of softer skills like being a good team player and being easy to get along with, you know, all of these things that we're so good at, all of us. Yes, of course. Well, being oh. in a space capsule... <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, you keep running all those pluses, Ramya, right through your mind. Oh, yeah, oh, oh, yeah, the the fitness. Oh, yeah, the dehydrated Uh, foods. Oh, yeah, yeah, fun. Um, being in a space capsule with others for a very long period of time would make those qualities super important, though, for the soft. But being a team player and, and being easy to get along with if you're in a spaceship is uh, quite important. You know, John must have shown lots of qualities because there were around 22,000 applicants um, from budding astronauts of, you know, all different abilities from all different places. So, you know, competition was pretty tough. Well, and we're always talking for, you know, somebody who gets back up on the horse and continues to ride after the fall uh, and, and or huge changes in life. There's a certain aptitude, a certain personality. And um, it sounds like John may have a lot of that. So what will he actually be doing when he joins this new group of recruits? Well, it is important to say that he will now join a feasibility project. And this will be to investigate what needs to be done to get a disabled person into space. And would this include checking on what adjustments need to be made, have to be made, and how feasible they are? Yes, exactly. So, yeah, feasibility project. It's just, like you say, seeing how feasible it all is to actually work. And the sort of thing that I've heard mentioned is how quickly John could escape if there was an emergency on the launch pad. You know, and this would need to be done without 
obviously endangering himself or any fellow astronauts. So it, I guess it's planning for the worst case scenario. Would he, if he can do that, then everything else is, you know, he can handle it all. Okay. All right. So to be clear, there are still some tests that, you know, have to be made before we can, you know, be pretty secure in seeing John in space. Yeah, that's true. Um, but for me, I think what the space agency is doing is setting a really great example that I really hope others will follow. Agreed. And you mean in terms of inclusion here, Fern? Yeah, I mean, I think they what what they're doing here is they're acknowledging that disabled people do have skills that they need and they know that there may be barriers to overcome but they're willing to try and tackle those. And, you know, instead of just dismissing the idea of, of having the opportunity at all, they're saying, let's actually look into this and let's see how feasible it actually is. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, Fern, do you think that willingness to be inclusive is just still way too rare? Definitely. Sadly, I have to say, I do think so. I think, you know, in my opinion, High unemployment amongst disabled people is partly just down to some employers not considering what adjustments could be made so that people can gain the benefits of employing disabled people. It's it's not that hard, but some people just aren't open-minded enough to actually look into mm-hmm. it. And yet there's this organization that's you know, for so many of us, I think the the first thing we would say if somebody said, hey, have you ever wanted to be an astronaut? Is like, yeah, right. You know, like, how could you imagine yourself in that position as a person with a disability? And mm-hmm. now this organization is saying, well, let's turn that on its head and do what we can. And then so we're always so excited over, hey, they're open to it, the idea. You know, have you ever wanted to be yeah. an astronaut? No, but they're open to it. Like, you know what I mean? It, it's amazing when you yeah. run into that. It's an actual possibility. Yeah, we like we can start imagining what it would be like with people like this doing it, you know, taking the initiative. And you could say, Fern, that a lot lack of thought about um, adjustments and accommodations for disability, this affects other areas of our lives, like access to leisure facilities. Absolutely. I think that, you know, if we can take a serious look at how possible it is to get disabled people into space then it should be done much more often for earthly activities too, you know. I mean, they're taking it to the extreme. So for me, that's a very big message to come out of this story. And I really hope it doesn't get lost because I think you're completely right. When people actually start opening up these possibilities, us, you know, as disabled people, we start to think, oh, maybe I could do that. And it's, you know, so liberating. I also love the feel that somebody... And, and again, you can sit here and say, I wonder what the impetus was, why they want to even consider this, who put it on their radar, suggested it and said, hey, you know, this is a possibility. We could try this. You always get wondering that. So what has the European Space Agency have to say about recruiting, John? Well, they sound very excited by it, but also very honest about the fact that they do have lots to learn about what it will take to get someone with a physical disability into space. So that, you know, they're being very balanced. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting, but as you say, they seem to understand the benefits of having John on their team. 
Mm, they do, absolutely. And and they seem to appreciate that disabled people have experience of adapting to difficult environments. You know, it's something we do all the time without even thinking about it and can bring a very different point of view to the team. And those are very valuable qualities to have in an astronaut and often underrated, I think, in society in general. Well, we know from recent developments that there are plans to go back to the moon and beyond. Wouldn't that be great to be talking about John and other disabled people being a part of those teams? Oh, 100% it would. But like I say, let's not forget that diversity is important here on Earth too. And, uh, and by the way, I would like to know how you guys would fancy going on a mission to the moon. What do you think? Up for it? Yeah, I mean, I know I talked about the accommodations and stuff, and I'm going to be a little bit hypocritical here because I just I don't see myself going to the moon or getting in a spaceship. And Chris Hatfield, who I thought after reading his book, The Canadian Astronaut, I'd be enthralled with the idea. It actually had the opposite effect on me. I was like, this sounds way too difficult for my lifestyle. <laughs> yeah, the long term <laughs> stuff, too, because they're still do more as more people get older yeah. and the research kind of makes you wonder. But what I find interesting is if I had to choose of uh, going three miles down in, in a submarine, a straight down or whatever in the ocean versus going into space for some reason, I think I'd rather go into space. But that's, and, and I, who mm. knows why? <laughs> I, I don't know if it's that perception from those pictures Chris Hatfield described, which are so amazing that I couldn't see. So that's pretty well where I stand on that, Fern. How about you? Uh, well, I think it would really be something that I, I would have to plan it out. Plan it out. Yeah. Oh. Things mm-hmm. um, and, you know, it's better than just being Saturn, my, my bum down here, isn't it? So um, uh, any yeah. other planet jokes we can make while we're here? Well, I'll tell you what, Fern, you know what? They started all this stuff <laughs> in the late uh, 50s, the 60s, really going around the moon. Things were far out. See you later. Oh, you always have to get in the last word, don't you? Ah, that's what the host gets to do, folks. Uh, <laughs> folks, we'll step aside for a couple of moments. Next, Fern, uh, Fern Lennon will be with us, uh, is with us on the program every couple of weeks here on Kelly and Company with UK Disability Highlights. Coming up next, though, we'll chat with choreographer Tadiava Stepanova about an upcoming performance of The Nutcracker. Stay tuned. When you have time, check out the Kelly and Company podcast available. Simply subscribe using your favorite podcast platform. You can find the show in its podcast feed, and you can find it in its complete form where we even toss on an audio vanity card on the end, or you can listen to the segments of the program. Maybe you've got a favorite contributor, community reporter, or want to re-listen to this upcoming segment again, visit and listen in on our podcast feed available to you. Just subscribe using your favorite podcast platform. Kelly McDonald here, my co-host, Ramya Muthan. Wonderful performance is coming up, and we wanted to take some time to chat about this one. Toronto International Ballet Theatre is presenting the triumphant, triumphant return of a production of the holiday classic, The Nutcracker. This is one of Tchaikovsky's most famous works, and this is happening on Saturday, December 17th at 7 p.m. Eastern at Meridian Hall. And it features world-class choreography by Tatiana Stefanova, 
whom we're chatting with right now. Tatiana, thank you for coming on Kelly and Company. Thank you to invite me to you. Thank you. Thank you. Of course. So let's talk about uh, you a little bit, your career in dance and how long it's been uh, going on. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, I start my career. I was seven years old and I was born in Ukrainian. And uh, it was a long time ago because this was Soviet Union. Yes. And mm-hmm. after mama sent me and my teacher from Ukrainian sent me to Bolshoi Ballet. It was in Moscow, but uh, it was like when it's Soviet Union, uh, we, uh, th- this was the best school at that time. Yeah, Bolshoi mm-hmm. and, uh, and I finished and after I come back uh, to my uh, city, Odessa, and uh, start to perform and became prima ballerina. Okay, that, so it that started was- a while ago for you. Yes, and and here was, now, how long has it like been? And... It's like yesterday. Sometimes you feel it like oh. yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> when you love it, right? When you love yes. it. So yes. here, how long have you been dancing? And and uh, you know, what kinds of ballets are you? Are you partial to any kinds of ballets taking part? Uh, um, no, I I was uh, when I was dancing in Odessa, and there's all classical repertoire, all. Excel, Sleeping Beauty, Fun Lake, Bayadels, uh, Don Quixote, Nutcracker. Of course, it's uh, like uh, many, 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 many performances and different mm-hmm. kind of shows. But when okay. I came to Canada, 94, 94, right? And uh, I start to dance, uh, not in Canada, but they invite me and dance uh, in the States uh, and, and continue to dance in the States and teach and Canada. Yeah. That's how I start after my school and my company. That's fantastic. And as you said, these classic ballets, the classical pieces that people love to see, we know that the Nutcracker is one of them, especially around the holidays. But for anyone who hasn't experienced it before or maybe are just scratching their heads thinking, oh, what is this one about again? Can you tell us a little bit about the show and what makes it special as a ballet? No, uh, the, our Nutcracker is based, of course, in the classical version. And uh, this is version what I uh, danced when I was in the, uh, Odessa and the different companies, right? And this is ballet more about, no, uh, of course, it's a ballet for holiday story, right? And mm-hmm. the story about how girl dream about being in a fairy tale with a prince. It's a beautiful story about the love and uh, um, Clara who is the young girl who is the, um, uh, the, the dance principal role right here she is in love uh, with ugly nutcracker and this is because of her love nutcracker became beautiful prince everybody dream about the prince right especially in your childhood you want to be in the real magic fairy tale mm-hmm. uh, and uh, uh, this is performance this year very special because I invite the uh, Ukrainian dancers yeah, who will share their talent with us and represent the country of Ukraine so is the whole uh, performance with Ukrainian dancers and cast no 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 no, no. I have the uh, audition and I have it's uh, from my school, from different school all over Ontario. We have audition. We have dancers 
from uh, Japan, uh, from Mexico, from uh, like okay. and 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 kind of young dancers, professional, right? And uh, uh, I invite the uh, principal dancers uh, from Ukrainian, but but uh, right now they're in Canada. In Canada, okay. right now they're in Canada. So four people, uh, four Ukrainian people will be dancing. I professional love it. dancers. Yes, of course. Mm -hmm. And I love it because, as you mentioned about the fairy tale and how we all kind of have these dreams or imaginations or childhood favorite fairy tales around the holidays that we love to listen to, um, this one, it, the Nutcracker, has been made in so many different ways, right? So many versions. I, the, only, the one that I can remember is the Barbie Nutcracker um, and then skates and ballerinas and all of these different ways. So... The way yes. that you keep it classic is pretty fantastic for anyone who wants to continue seeing it that way. I know, you know, a classic will be forever. Mm -hmm. forever. Uh, what is will be different era where we uh, we can have contemporary, like modern dance, but classical dance will be forever. And everybody, especially for the young kids who wants to see ballet, who wants to be ballerina or the dancer, right? They have to come and see this tale, yeah, magic tale. And one day they said, Mom, I want to be on stage two. I want to be ballerina. We have to inspire them, right? Right. When they come and they have to like fly, oh, my God, I want to be ballerina. How beautiful this is. That's for me. This is for me. It's another goal, right, to give inspiration for many, many, many young uh, kids and dancers, yeah. That's so wonderful. Um, Tatiana, can you tell us a little bit about the clothing, the war, like the wardrobe that we've got, the set? Could you tell us about the design of that? Paint a picture for us. Uh, it's a, a beautiful um, design. I did design uh, from uh, one of the, from the States. It was a long time ago. I did the backdrops. It's everything like... <clears throat> Uh, everything uh, made by like by hand, right? Oh, wow. And uh, beautiful props, uh, like I mean, built here, like uh, unbelievable, uh, like um, like when 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 you see the first what appeared because it is not first time. When it's open the stage, you know what auditorium I, I can hear. This is ah, wow. See the first impression. When it's open stage, how it's supposed to be, be, right? Because first, you can hear music, beautiful at Tchaikovsky. Now open the curtain, and you can see the set, the costume, and, and uh, all this uh, beautiful tiaras, the wigs. I have wigs, everything in the uh, 18th century, right? Beautiful. Like, I mean, that kind of style. Uh, Ludovic Fortin, the costumes of Ludovic Fortin I have, a king and queen in the second act. And uh, um, what I can say, just uh, it's beautiful. Yeah. Well, I, I know when I went to it as, as a kid, and of course, you really felt that that feel with the music. We we knew the music um, and and what goes on with the story itself. You know, it, people still love to take that the family to to the Nutcracker. Should we say that for this being traditionalist? It, it's for all ages, isn't it? All for, you know, three and a half years old kids watching this Nutcracker. And I, I, because I know this, I know. And they say they, they cannot move. They look at the stage and open mouth. Ah. Oh, that's so nice. Really, 
old. Three and a half years old. Never mind another age, right? Right. This is for all ages. Like, you have to feel the mood of Christmas, of Christmas Eve. And something, we're always waiting for something, right? For something good, for something magical for us, right? Something will be positive, something coming for us, the good things, right? What that kind of performance, when you come, you're totally in it. You're totally out of everything. You're inside the story. It's very magical. And with that being said, I can't even imagine how one choreographs something so, so huge. Could you just briefly tell us a little bit about that? Is is it one of those special uh, uh, you know, programs to, to choreograph? Uh, is it just such a delight because you have so many moving parts? Tell us about that briefly. Uh, look, no, first of all, I see the whole picture, what kind of um, era I have to be, 18th, 19th century, that, what this is uh, the era, right? And you come from the costume, uh, when you see the costume, you, you see the, in the guest party, for example, this historical dance. And after, you can see the young Clara, da? Uh, young Clara, of course, she dance on the uh, point, right? A beautiful dance of the march, if you know this uh, first act, da? when kids dancing, kids, boys and girls. And uh, uh, um, what is the magic? Like, <laughs> the young Clara transform from young lady Clara, right? And uh, uh, this is, will be the principal dancer, right? Mm-hmm. And that was very mm-hmm. choreographed because, like, uh, like in the magic, and at night you became the young lady. From yes. 13 years old, you became 16, 18, right? That kind of. And uh, Prince became the uh, Nutcracker became Prince, and this is what how started the first love, innocent first love, right? And this is very interesting to choreograph because it's very emotional, very more music, music give for you, right? Lots of emotions, yeah, to choreograph. But uh, of course, it's based on in the classical foundation, in the classical foundation. Yeah, and you really feel it, I'm sure, as you are doing it, and as you are, you know, putting it together, what you want, and so much to it. Um, one quick thing: what for you is the most exciting part of a show like this? Prepping, getting it ready, put rehearsals, or the day, well, or just before performance. Which which one would you say? I don't know what it's very interesting because when you are a rehearse, you create, you working every day differently. You can see the dancer, you create of them. You you can see how you can represent them the best way for auditorium to bring the beauty, you know, to class, to quality, mm-hmm. everything. This is very important time for me. The creation before the show. Show this is excited moment. You know, very excited, right? And. Uh, <laughs> Not only for me, for all dancers. They're already ready to dance. Yep. Right? But and Tatiana, the preparation is a whole different ball game. We really appreciate you coming on the show. And sorry to run you out, but we've run out of time. Thank you so much and all the best. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Choreographer Tatiana Stepanova talking to us about the upcoming performance of The Nutcracker presented by Toronto International Ballet Theatre. We'll step aside for a moment. Hour two ahead on Kelly and Company. Thanks for being with us wherever you're listening in around the world. We appreciate it. 
Maybe you're listening at AMI.ca where you can stream the program or you check us out that way. Kelly McDonald here with Romeo Muthan. We're the hosts of Kelly and Company. In this hour, we're going to chat with uh, Minette Samanu. Uh, we're going to be talking to her as she's from the Alliance for the Equality of Blind Canadians about their upcoming virtual event for International Day of Persons with Disabilities. That's this Saturday. We'll have that here on AMI-audio for you as well. So she'll be joining us to fill us in shortly. Uh, also, the roundtable where Sylvie Fiquette joins us all the way from Vancouver as our guest today on the program. Rummy and I welcome in Bill Shackleton. It's the second day of the week that he joins us. Margaret Weldon will fill in for him as well tomorrow on the program as Billy's away. But today, work to do, Shaq. What you got for us? Where are we starting with your items as we welcome you into the buzz, folks? Well, we're, you know, in keeping with virtual reality, we have this one. It's actually um, one love, uh, immersive experience. Um, to land in Los Angeles next year. So this is Bob Marley. And for people who I get who don't know who Bob Marley was, basically he was born in 1945 and died in 1981. And he's regarded by a lot of people as probably one of the most influential reggae musicians that maybe ever lived or ever came out of Jamaica anyway. And he was very, well, he was really into social justice. Um, So this One Love Experience is a multi-room virtual thing. It has photographs, concert videos, music sheets, um, a soccer jersey, and sneakers that he wore, and all kinds of art that highlighted Marley's, um, you know, his influence. Another room is going to contain what they call the One Love Forest, which is kind of interesting, where you can take a virtual trip to Jamaica if you can't go. Again, you got more music, more videos, and a camp, a, a cannabis garden. So it's, I, I would think this was kind of interesting. Yeah, I think for people who really, um, whether you enjoyed the music or saw him as that person who spoke up, as you mentioned, the social justice stuff um, that he stood for and those in agreement with him went along with uh, how he felt, how he viewed the world and hoped um, for that, that freedoms and, and being kind to, you know, to everyone in your world or in the world, I guess is a better way to say it. I think for people, especially those who've just heard about this man, this is a great trip. Obviously, uh, you know, down down memory lane, or not memory lane, being educated to him, but down memory lane for those who were fans of his music, and uh, and I think Bill, there there was a huge separation. You either were a fan of the music, uh, maybe a fan of the music, but also the way this man did his life. There were so many people that, yeah, okay, I'm not into the social justice stuff. The music is fantastic, and I think out of a lot of performers, artists that we know of in our time and beyond before, he was somebody that really you you may have only known him for his music. You may have known more, but there was definitely that that audience that, yeah, I'm not caring about that stuff. I just love the music. I think out of a lot of artists out there, he was one of those people that had the two factions. Oh, I think you were, uh, you know, you were, either in the music or you were into what he was, what he stood for. I mean, listening to the words, um, very powerful 
you know, some of the some of the song, if you really listen carefully, it it really does carry a lot of. I don't know. I don't know whether weight's the right word, but yeah, a lot of influence. Well, it's also a hard ton. too because so much at that time um, was introducing people here to people in the islands and, and some of those things that we just didn't have a clue about. And that era wouldn't have known in the late sixties, seventies into the eighties, but people just didn't know. And out comes this music out comes, you know, the, this world speaker, this person who, you know, people got to know for, you know, his presence, but a man who said, no, this is just the way I feel about stuff. I want to do my music. And that was, um, powerful in his time right like obviously oh, yeah. he's a legend and he he lives on in all his fans all this culture uh, incredible amount of not just music but um, other things right that he's influenced but definitely when he was alive he was he was the kind of person who people were talking about him because he was doing things and saying things and and being a way that was not the norm at the time, and, like he was really and he spoke breaking a music. lot of cycles. Not he spoke through we, his. We don't music. have the internet and things like that to carry people's tweets exactly. or words. It was I'm buying where people would buy some kind of tabletop book for certain writers out there, certain journalists they wanted to follow. Yeah. You bought this fella's music, and in a country yeah. and in a time where people were fighting. To make yeah. the kinds of uh, notions that Bob Marley was making, he was doing it with love, which is why I think it the the joy is spread through his music and through everything else, right? Well, as the old, as the saying goes, his story is far from over, and you know, I I hope that I mean, I'm sure there are other musicians. I hope that are that are carrying the torch, so to speak. Yeah. What else do you have for us, sir? What do we have? How cost? This is. Holocaust survivors offer DNA testing to help find families. Interesting from the Associated Press. The New York-based Center for Jewish History is offering Holocaust survivors DNA testing to help find families that have been, you know, torn apart. Maybe they were torn apart in the camps or whatever, there's a lot of people, um, the survivors, uh, that that may, maybe not even know that they have any family members that are still alive. And you got to remember, these paper trails, they're gone. Like the only way that you are going to connect with a family member um, is, and, and, unless you get really lucky, is DNA testing. And as as the article pointed out, it has helped one person, a man, find his, you know, his family. And, I mean, DNA testing has been going on for a long time, but this is concentrating on a small group of people. And, you know, Holocaust survivors are dying all the time. So, you know, if you have any doubt about whether you have any families, um, you should probably get DNA testing if you want to know, because a lot of these people... Geez, I've got a brother that that I thought was dead, or a mother, a father living on the other side of the world. You never know. It's one of those things that have spread people out so much, right, Billy? Like oh, yeah. around the world, um, generations ago, like you're saying, long lost, I guess, estranged. Yeah. And 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 we've talked about um 
genetic testing in so many different contexts and why it might be beneficial, why it might be scary, why it might open up a can of worms. But yeah, in this context, it is the the fact that you might not even realize that there's family out there. And I'm sure for people who have lived through that that trauma of the Holocaust um, or have generations of people before them who have, it, there's that unhealed space in you, right? That that place in you that isn't actually sure. Like, should you even think back to that? Should you even wonder if you have long lost family? And, and I'm sure it's a bittersweet um, observation if you do end up doing it. And I, and I guess there are people that, that are, like you say, don't want to know. Some people want to, you know, move on and, 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 and forget about the past. And some people, but you know what it does? It offers a sense of closure. Um, and it, yes, it's it does. a lot of these people you won't get. That's the only closure they're going to get. It does do that, Billy. And that is huge. Like you talked about weight yeah. in the other article, you, you know, the weight of closure or that emptiness without closure is so huge. And you're right. It offers that for anyone who is kind of on the fence with it. Maybe that's what would make you want to head that direction or give it a shot. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. One so, more? Billy, what do you got? Yeah, let's slide the last one in quick. Well, there, there's a project out of, out of the University of Calgary that is basically they're, they're doing 3D replicas of residential schools. And the thinking, again, is that, um, you know, we are we don't want to hide our we have that's a very uh, dark history, part of our history. And these people at, at the university are creating three res, replicas of residential schools and they have survivors telling survivors telling their stories and I mean, I think you would agree that if you, unless you lived in a residential school, you can't imagine what it was like, whether you had a good or a bad experience, you can't imagine what it was like. And the, the, they want to preserve this history, um, you know, that sort of thing. And I, I think that's very, very um, important to, especially young people who, Maybe you haven't gone to a residential school and you don't know the history of, you know, the of, of, of your the native people that, uh, you know, you're among them and you don't know. So they want these young people to sort of understand what these people went through. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think, Bill, that's where we get stuck the most. So much in our world, there's so many things going on. There are so many ways to not bring yourself up to speed on something. And when I say that, I don't mean every detail, but be aware, be aware of, of atrocities particularly. And sometimes we really get stuck on finding so many other ways to not put it out there in front of people where some people will say, well, I, I don't need to shove down my throat. I, I'm willing to learn, but you don't have to shove it down my throat. But we do have to expose us to knowing. And that is the only way we realize, hey, yeah, on this particular subject, some real nasty stuff happened. And oh, yeah. you know what? That's all people are asking to be aware. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, pal. We'll uh, talk to you next week when you return to the program. Oh, talk later. Bill Shackleton brings us the buzz Wednesday through Fridays. Margaret will fill in for him and cover it off tomorrow here on the program. Coming up next, we'll chat with Manette Samaru from Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians about the upcoming virtual event for International Day of Persons with Disabilities. Details ahead.
Thanks for being with us, ladies and gentlemen. Hey, remember, check us out on your TV. Around Canada, you can find us, Compton subscribers, look for us on channel 88. And Eastlink customers, guys, you can find us on channel 887. Visit ami.ca slash audio for a list of channel locations in your area. Kelly McDonald here with Ramya Muthan. Well, of course, we have tons to celebrate and recognize as we get closer to the International Day of Persons with Disabilities. That is this weekend on December 3rd. And the Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians aims to increase awareness of rights and responsibilities so that blind, deafblind, and partially sighted individuals can have equal access to the benefits and opportunities of society. So they take a huge part in this day on December 3rd. And we're going to speak with Minette Samaru of AABC right now about their sixth annual event for International Day of Persons with Disabilities. Minette, it's nice to have you back on the show and to be chatting with you. Oh, thank you, Ramya. Thank you. I'm, I'm very excited to be here and to... Um, talk about this this event. It's very, very, you know, near and dear to us. Of course, yeah, and it's it's big. It's going to be hopefully very well attended because you're offering a lot. But before we get to the event, Minette, can we talk a little bit about you and um, if you don't mind introducing yourself to us, your role at AABC and what inspires the work that you do for you? Yeah, so my name is Minette Samaru and I am currently the president of the Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians, Toronto Chapter. And I'm really interested in, in, you know, advocacy, like getting us what we need. Like I grew up in a developing country where, you know, there there was limited resources and, um, you know, little to no technology. And coming here to Canada, I found that there are like so many resources, so many opportunities, you know, amazing technology. But what I also find is that it's not like readily accessible, like it's there, but you just can't go and and get it. It's all about advocating for it. You have to ask for it, right? You have to ask. And and I'm passionate about doing this because I want to encourage others, you know, to never give up, just ask, and and you will eventually get what you need. Mm. That's a really, uh, you know, personal way, an experiential-based way of looking at it. And it's very true for a lot of us who have disabilities. We can attest to that, right? Having to advocate on some level, um, whether it be in your own life day-to-day or for a bigger picture scenario that you can see for others around you as well as yourself. So tell us about the Alliance then um, for Equality of Blind Canadians and what the organization does on that level. So we advocate for equal opportunities for people who are blind, partially sighted, and deafblind through participation in community and um, government levels. Like we attend and we, you know, equal opportunities for, you know, communications, websites, um, you know, built environment. We attend these consultations and we share our views and, you know, what, these um, areas, what what they need to do to make their services accessible for people with vision loss. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff on that level, right, Manette? There's so much yeah. that we we talk about on the show. I'm sure you all talk about in your organization and uh, p- community members all over talk about that government can do that um, we can do, like, band together and uh, stand in solidarity for. And a lot of things that even we feel 
could be happening already, but are very <laughs> slow for uptake. Yes, exactly. That's why we need to, you know, press on. We we can't give up. We we have accomplished so much already, and you know, we we need to just keep the ball rolling, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. It, it's constant effort, not just like, um, you know, a, a one day scenario. Can we talk about the sixth event, the sixth annual event for the day of um, International Day of Persons with Disabilities? What do you have on the docket for the event that's going on? Well, we have, you know, we have a, a excellent lineup of speakers. Um, it's going to be amazing. Like we have our first International speaker, like we have a speaker from the States who is Sanya Rao from um, the I Blind Users Group, and she will be one of our keynote. And we also have our first accessibility, accessibility commissioner, um, Michael Gothile, who will be another keynote, and he will be doing like an interactive session, not just, you know, doing that, uh, a straight presentation. So, you know, participants can be able to ask questions and he'll be able to respond. So that's, you know, quite exciting. And we also have, um, you know, our panelists, Keenan Wellen um, and others. So it's going to be really, really great. We also have some entertainment. Um, we're doing a song by Murray Powell. And we also have a poem by um, Leroy Ennis. So, you know, there's going to be a mix, a mixture of, of everything in that day. And it's it's a celebrate, celebratory um, event. We want to, you know, not just um, talk about pirates and gas, but also celebrate our accomplishments. There's this mix, real great mix of, I think, art, <coughs> presentation, um, Q&A. So, you know, a less, less formal discussion. Um, and I think that that's great because you guys are doing this for a couple hours, right? And that means there's a lot of space for all kinds of conversation to be taking place. Where did you go to look for the people that you wanted to um, bring on and the kinds of subjects you wanted to highlight this year? So what we do, we come up with a, a, a theme for each year and then we develop some, based on that, we develop some sub-themes and we, then we put together a call to speaker document and we send it out like far and wide. And we have people apply and we kind of have a, a speaker review committee who reviews those applications and they have like a scoring criteria, score, um, you know, applicants based on our, our theme and sub-themes and that's how they are selected. So it's, um, you know, a, a very um, streamlined process. Yeah, so and I love to see that too, um, that call out for speakers when when that comes out earlier on in the year, because that means people can have a first hand in uh, input in what's going to be talked about. Sorry, Kels. Yes, exactly. So, you know, we, we want to stick to our, our theme because it's like each year it's something different. And this year empowering ourselves, we, we mean like, you know, the pandemic has done so many things, but there's also some good things, right? Like, like online, like we are having stuff online. We're having mm -hmm. like work from home now, which was never possible, right? Um, people with disabilities have been asking for that like forever, but it was not possible. But during the pandemic, all of a sudden, like so many things are possible and we need to like, you know, take on that and, and not let it go. We need to like um, keep on, keep on these, 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 these positive things that have been happening for people with disabilities. Well, you know, Annette, it's always interesting to me when we think about what the pandemic has given us in the sense of, 
these virtual things, which you know, I, I'm thinking uh, will help you guys reach so many more people in this capacity. And beforehand, we just didn't think along those routes. Everybody wanted things in person. And when we uh-huh. you start doing these things, more people gravitate, more people hear about it. So one would ask, okay, so now you have a lot more people in this capacity accepting that this is the reachable way to include them. So who would this event be for? And has this, as far as you're concerned, made this a much more obtainable event for people to be a part of? Yeah, so so people for, you know, all diverse disabilities and not just for um, people who are blind or partially sighted. We have like, like, it's like a community event, I have it as, a community event where people come and listen and, you know, learn as well as be empowered and inspired of of what we have uh, accomplished so far as well. So with the people out there listening in saying, is this for me or not? What's your quick answer for them? It is for everyone, you know, with disabilities or without disabilities, because you know what? Disability touches across all um, demographic and socioeconomic status, and it affects most everyone, you know, either through age, illness, or accidents. So the accommodation someone makes today or learns about today could benefit them tomorrow. When you're speaking to your guests that are going to come on and speak to us, especially year to year, you guys have done this now as we're talking about the sixth annual, how do you couch it to them as to what they how much is conversation of what they think at this time is, is a great subject to bring forward and keeping on the themes that you guys may have already discussed and expressed to, to each other. We want to get into this. We want somebody to talk to that. And as you get speaking to the guest speakers, how does that all mesh and, and how much leeway do you guys feel you should have? Should you stick so to, to what you're thinking? This is the theme. We want to stick to that. Um, how open to that shifting, that change, and and how comfortable are you guys with that? Because we know there's nothing that we shouldn't learn about, that whether it's right on the theme or topic, these folks are bringing some key interesting things for everybody, no matter what. Yeah, that's right. We, we're going to be quite open because, you know, as, as Commissioner um, Gautel says, you know, he... Um, he wants to do like an, an open interaction. He doesn't want to stick with a, a presentation. So that, that's why we said, yes, you know what? This is what you want. This is what you do. And let's see how it goes. You know, like, so people can ask, ask him anything. And I'm sure, I'm sure that there are going to be like lots of questions not relating to our theme. And I'm sure, um, you know, Commissioner Gothile would be willing to answer them. Manette, how do people get involved? How do they sign up? What, what should they do as we're less than 48 hours away? Yeah, so it's the it's on Eventbrite, so you can go on Eventbrite, and I've sent out a number of um, emails. Uh, one and yesterday, I think I sent out the last, the last final reminder. Also, if you want to register via email, you can send an email to aebctoronto at gmail dot com, and I can send you that Zoom link. And we have, um, when we last checked early this week, we have like over a hundred registrants already, so it's amazing. That is amazing. That's wonderful from when you know, back early days when you guys were hosting this event and how huge it's become. So with that being said, what are you most looking forward to when you are 
looking forward to the show Saturday, everything happening, the event itself, and can sit back a little bit and say, oh, you, what are you most excited about? And do you also want to share what at this point you're most anxious about? Well, I'm most excited about you know everyone coming in and um, learning something new or, or being inspired to um, you know continue advocating and know that you know it's like we're not alone. There are others who are who are with us, right? It's 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 a collective effort. Um, what I'm most anxious about is technology. You know, no, no matter how much you uh, kind uh, of yes. prepare, uh, it's something always. <laughs> You know, yeah, so that, um, that's, yeah. Our best friend. Anything else in closing? We know Joey DeGuta is one of the co-hosts. You're you're uh, usually with the event um, in hosting as well. Any Anything else we should know uh, so we can increase that 100 to maybe 400? No, well, we just want to say, you know, come out, listen. There's, there's something for everyone. And, you know, I'm sure that, you know, once you come out and listen, you, you will not go back the same way. That's really tremendous when you say it that way because it's so true. And even for you guys, I'm sure hosting the event, you just never know as we talked about how those conversations, what the questions are going to lead to, but you just know that there's going to be some engaging in conversation that each person there will take away who's ever attending, ever a part of it, um, what's really important to them and and somebody will learn something. Yes, that's our, our hope. Somebody will learn something. Somebody will be empowered. You know, somebody will be inspired. Well, Minette, it's wonderful that you guys are continuing strong with this celebration and recognition. Um, appreciate all the time that your team puts into it. Talk to you soon and all the best. Yes, thank you to EMI also for hosting us again this year. Much appreciated. Take care. Manette Samaru from the Alliance for uh, Equity of Blind Canadians talking about their virtual upcoming event for International Day of Persons with Disabilities this Saturday, December 3rd. Well, folks, last roundtable that um, we're, we're hosting between Ramya and I here. So we brought someone special on, a longtime AMI employee. Today's guest is Sylvie Fiquet from Vancouver. Stick around. Isn't it convenient that we have a round table? Well, it's actually oval. Just say yeah, it. The blind guy feels it now. Goes, <laughs> well, I don't know. Well, yeah, I guess it is oval. Kind of oval. So we are uh, back for the round table. As mentioned, I, I kind of made it sound a little final here, but when I say that, this is the last round table with Romeo Muthan with me uh, on the round table uh, before we become Kelly and Romeo and, and have our own round version of the round. I wonder if we'll keep the same music, right? And Try you to, on right? the round table as well, right? What's that? Are you, is this the last time you'll be on the round table? Uh, you'll be oh, hosting the right. round table? Yeah, Brock yeah. is, is going to be in here doing it next week because we're working on prep and everything for, yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's going no to be a very- No pressure to our guest though. No, and that's going to be a very <laughs> special round table so people catch that uh, as we get the co-hosts who back us up when we're away, the backup co-hosts, uh, all together and they're going to talk about their time here on Kelly and Company. Um, right off the bat, of course, this is a round table. We pick a few items and bring them to talk about. But today I have to say, bringing Sylvie Fiquette on here, as much as Sylvie is one who, well, okay, what are you going to talk about? Well, Sylvie, we'll just kick some things around in a little bit. But one of the things I did want to start with is 
an employee who has been here longer than I have with AMI um, remembers things back into the, the 90s when you started with the company and you see such progress, such change. And we are talking a lot of change with our show moving to the, the TV component. But I'm sure, like me, you never, ever saw this switch from a reading service, which we had in voice print, to AMI-audio, to doing live stuff, to moving that stuff even onto the TV side once the TV channel came. There were so many things that back in the day, when I know I jumped on the ship, these things weren't in the cards. Welcome to the roundtable. Thanks for having me, Kelly and Ramya. Well, not dating me too much there, as in not literally dating me, but putting me in the 90s. I think it was around 2002 that I joined as a voice print at the time, a, a, a coordinator at the Vancouver Bureau. And it was a reading service. So we've we've come so far in leaps and bounds, Kelly, that I can't even imagine. Um, but everything is, is um, just change and growth and evolving, and it's pretty wonderful. I think when you look at uh, uh, as things evolve, it's pretty amazing. And really, I thought you were here before me. So I, I, I do apologize and throwing those dates out to saying, oh, no, you were back here in the real troubled times. And, you know, and when, I was. Uh, OK, so <laughs> I, it was before because I came in 01. So you were there. And when we say troubled times, folks, it was, it was just a time when money was lean, not there. And uh, it's so important when we talk about the renewal uh, of the license and, and at the time when there were struggles and so many people had to come and voluntarily uh, keep the ship fl uh, floating back then. Yeah, you know, you're right, Kelly. I did, at the time, there was a board in Vancouver. So there was a BC Society of Voice Print and I was hired by them in 2001. So my official hiring to what was the National Broadcast Reading Service was 2002. But I, that's you and I were liaising at that time. We were working together because I was uploading content in real time to you from that bureau in 2001. Yeah, uh, Shaq, myself, uh, Tony King, who we've had here on the program, uh, he he was, uh, we were the technicians in Toronto and had to talk to all you guys around the country. So uh, a lot of change, a lot of different times. And Sylvie thought it was apropos to bring you on here as you've been joining us and bringing so many great stories to talk about in the region. And I've just always been fascinated by the fact that you guys, and even back then, part of your job as the Bureau Chiefs, as we called you at one point, you still had to get out and know so much in the community. And so many examples of that, Ramya, are shown when Sylvie brings great contact, content to us from such as groups as Vocali and so on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the regionality um, aspect of these stories are always such a plus with Sylvie, Karen, Ryan and Jim. And then um, also the moments when we're like, oh, man, I wish I lived in Vancouver. This sounds like such a nice year to be in Vancouver because <laughs> of all the things that are going on there. But definitely it's almost like we're keeping in touch with all these different communities um, without having to be there. It's It feels uh, much smaller. You get a real good picture, Sylvie. I, I, you know, it's really interesting from you guys for people to get as blind people. I picture so many different things when Jim's talking about stuff there, when Ryan's explaining to us how the disability community is, you know, has this going on. When you are talking about an event where artists are doing something in, in Vancouver, 
I find it just makes everything so much smaller. That world and is such a crucial piece to what we do here on Kelly and Company. But you guys have been doing it for 20, 25 years, you know, well, in the sense of people in the different regions taking care of this business. You know, really well put, Kelly, saying that that regionality, that was actually the cornerstone or the one of the most important reasons why the CRTC gave um, us a license uh, many years ago was that there would be regional diversity showcased um, on the programming. And that has been significant since day one and it continues to be so because I don't think we would want something to be Vancouver centric or Toronto centric for that matter when we're able to get into many small communities, rural Canada, and just showcase a real abundance of information that's impacting employment, housing, uh, education, transportation. It's it's quite um, important to reflect that in terms of representation across the country. Rummy, it gives people ideas. You know, we sit here in the privileged position doing this program and when we move to doing Kelly and Rummy, and we'll still be able to hear the stories of different things, different ideas. And when all of us sit here and say, Oh, they're doing that in Edmonton. Gee, I'd like to do that. We should get a group started here. Yep, exactly. Um, I don't know. For some reason, the the Rick Hansen Foundation came to mind here for me. Like the the kinds of bars that they set, right, and say this is what qualifies you as a gold standard accessible place. And and sometimes the the stories that we feature, you know, the sports and rec organizations, the kinds of resources that people and communities are pulling together to make something happen um, feel so extraordinary, but also like as extraordinary as it is, it's just real people doing real everyday things, um, you know, catalyst of of inspiration and other kind of creative juices and just getting together, being resourceful. And when you talk about that, it's true. You spread that idea and other people have um, a better understanding of how they can start something like that in their communities. Yeah, and that's so important because not everybody's community is the same. So some of those ideas have to be crafted differently for, yes. for say, you know, a smaller a smaller community um, or, or larger. Ladies, thank you. Um, let's jump into some of the topics we've got. Then. We won't get to everything I pulled out, but I did want to point out that HIV activists are marking um, World's, World AIDS Day by urging Ottawa to help stop a global backslide in progress on stemming infection and stigma. There's a rising proportion of new HIV cases among women and people who inject drugs in Canada, with Indigenous people accounting for nearly one-fifth of new infections in 2020. Advocates point out that Canada still criminalizes people for not telling sexual partners that they have HIV, even when prescription drugs make it impossible to transmit the virus. They argue that the risk of prosecution prevents people from accessing testing and treatment. AIDS has killed roughly 40 million people, including 650,000 in 2021. Emily Jovesky, The Canadian Press. So in the 80s, a lot of conversation um, as as we found out different people, um, notable people um, who had uh, HIV and, and so on into to AIDS. And it kept us alert, kept us focused, kept us saying we need to do something, we need to fight. 
over the last few, well, I'll say two decades, less and less conversation, which leads sometimes us to figure things are in hand, um, that something is declined, good, we're doing the right things. When a lot of time, Ramya, it just simply means we've stopped talking about something we've accepted and we aren't making something a priority as, as maybe we should. Do we feel that that conversation has, or lack of conversation pertaining HIV AIDS, um, has kind of stopped some of the forward movement of us keeping on top of and, and ahead of the game with this uh, yep. with this disease? Well, it always, it, it takes people, right? It takes that um, prioritizing of a conversation for it to be able to move forward. We just spoke with Manette about how important it is to really just keep honing in about advocacy, about how important advocacy is. And without people putting in the daily grind, for communities uh, and to, to spread awareness, to keep looking at and keep paying attention to research or conversation or um, eliminating stigma, whatever it is, without that, it, it can't move forward and it becomes a background thing. So I think with a lot of stuff going on in the world, it's true, not just with HIV and AIDS, but with a lot of uh, topics they're they're becoming back burner projects and we're not maybe putting in the capacity that we know needs to happen. I mean, listening to this clip, it was like a shock back to reality, right, of of what exactly is going on. And Sylvie, I don't know if you feel the same as I do, but shock keeping on top of some of the advancements, the, the progressions when it comes to medications, treatments and things like that, because we're just left not talking about it. Oh, it's just gone away. And we know better than that. Yeah, you know, a couple of words there, the back burner, backslide of awareness and information. I think we're all to a certain degree guilty of yeah. saying, oh, okay, medical advancements have, they're treating HIV. There are so many that are receiving treatment. But then hearing that clip, there are so many vulnerable individuals who lack access uh, to having the, the critical drugs. And just it, bottom line, the criminalization or related to, you know, you're going to face that if you're disclosing it in any way or, or, you, or you haven't disclosed that you're, that you have HIV. So it, it is conversation is key, you guys. And I think it's really, really important that that be driven forward again. And that zap, like Ramia said, bring us, wake us up again. Yeah. And I know we have to have days where we're just reminded and say, oh, really? Because as as we look at anything and coming out of the pandemic, the, the biggest example of all for us that's right now present in front of us, how much we want to move past, how much we want to move on. We've been hearing about, you know, hey, you might want your flu shot. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. For years, but it's so different than when the flu, the influenza over 100 years ago took so many lives and that was front and center in their world because people were, were severely getting sick and dying. Uh, but as things kind of calm down or we perceive them to, we, we move on. Um, many European cities are deciding whether they should light their streets uh, for Christmas as the energy crisis takes hold. Excited Parisians count down as Paris's mayor, alongside several celebrities, pushes the button, setting the whole of the famous Champs-Élysées alight. 
However, unlike Christmas is gone, the lights in the French capital this year will turn off over two hours earlier at 11.45pm. Officials throughout Europe are wrestling with a difficult choice. Either they create holiday cheer that may help boost the economy, or they dim the Christmas lights this year in solidarity with their citizens who may be struggling with higher energy bills. In Denmark, they're striving for a happy balance, as the park director of Tivoli Gardens, Kasper Schumacher, tells the AP. We are looking at our rides. We are making sure that rides are full before we, we start them up. And they, then we, 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 we shut down the lights during night times when, the, when, uh, when we are closed. Karen Chamas, London. Lights are so much out there to advertise. The City of Lights is what Paris is known as. So you think about them thinking of this kind of thing. Sylvie, where where in Vancouver would you say this kind of thing could be implemented or where you could go without having the big and pomp and circumstance via lights in, in Vancouver? I feel that what happens with Christmas lights, it, it just seems like Halloween is done And then the next week we have to have Mm -hmm. full on lights everywhere. And I feel like that could be scaled back, not to mention why do we need to have them on throughout the day light hours? Like just even have them for a period of time um, in the evening and then shut them off. Like what I, I notice here in Vancouver, there are some really beautiful things like St. Paul's Hospital on Burrard Street downtown, which has a massive Lights of Hope display. It's their major fundraising element, um, but it's a lot of lights. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. there's, there, there's a lot. And they need it. And it's hard because you'd almost think somewhere that's like in Toronto Rum, you guys have the CN Tower. Does the CN Tower need to do the lighting that they do, which is absolutely beautiful? The changing of colors a year round, the thing they do. But are there places that could say, you know what, we don't need to have Rogers Center sold it up? Do they need that? Does the CN Tower, because you got places that really do need to attract people for maybe charitable donations and that, is there somewhere you would think that should? go darker or at least you know not leave them on all night everywhere everywhere like it really isn't yeah, spoken that like a difficult. true blind person <laughs> honestly come on you visually dependent you no it's honestly because it's because i think that this is a, a deeper conversation for me in the sense of we talk about with other things, right? With the environmental Air conditioning, for that, example. Yeah. People Air running it in the heat of summer, doors open for patios. With pandemic and people traveling and breaking restrictions and all these other ways, right, where we say there's this huge gap, this huge us and them, or if you're rich, if you have the money, if you have the control, the power, then you don't need to follow these um, these other things that the rest of us have to follow. And I, I really do think in that sense, if people are experiencing energy crises around the world, if we all agree that we have a part to play in all of it, then perhaps, you know, whether you're the CN Tower or uh, a residential home, we all need to take into consideration the energy that we're using. Yeah. And again, Sylvie, it's so tough because we all have that certain place that means Christmas to us that you want to go and look at the lights. We see that with the big 40-foot trees or whatever, 30-foot trees in New York and different cities like that. And I know we all have that thing in our home community. Um, it's uh, it's kind of a sad thing, but we're not being asked to do without. They're talking cutting back, which maybe we, with the energy problems we're having, maybe we should think about it all the time. Thank you for joining us, too, on the program today. Okay, my pleasure, you guys. Have a fantastic 
Thursday and a fantastic weekend. Okay, Sylvie. Sylvie Fouquet joining us from Vancouver on the Weekly Roundtable. Uh, we'll be back next week with another edition of the Roundtable. As mentioned, a very special edition. Brock Richardson will be hosting it. And uh, the co-hosts, the backup co-hosts for us here on Kelly & Company will be in attendance for that one. Hope you'll join us. We'll stop here. We'll take a break and return to tell you what's coming up tomorrow on our program and see what Now with Dave Brown has for us. Welcome back to Kelly and Company, Ramya Muth and Kelly McDonald. Hey, uh, the other day you mentioned uh, when we did the radio play, uh, actually we've done a couple here for AMI-audio, they got another one on the go. They do. This one looks really great. Really great. Uh, Sounds like an interesting story and always wonder, always love the idea of of radio plays and stuff, folks. Let's tell you a little bit about it. Seen and Not Heard. This is a podcast series released uh, in late 2019 and throughout 2020. We've gathered it and we'll be airing it here on AMI-audio December 17, 2022. Starting at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, Caroline Minx is the author of this piece and star of the podcast series. The fictional story is about a young woman named Bette who lost a significant amount of her hearing uh, in her late teens, and it was sudden, too, when it happened. She's adjusting to life with a disability from her struggles with romance, her parents, and learning ASL, and dealing, of course, with day-to-day life. Seen and Not Heard offers a glimpse into her life following the presentation of the series. Check out Jacob Shemansky's uh, interview with Caroline Minx, too. Seen and Not Heard on AMI-audio, Saturday, December 17th at 11 a.m. Eastern. Now, Ramya, let's uh, call in Paul Daniel here. This uh, fellow is going to tell us a little bit about what's coming up on Now with Dave Brown. You can find that program on AMI-tv at uh, 9 a.m. in the morning, almost at 11 since I just read that promo. Sir, welcome back to the show, and what's on the agenda for tomorrow? We could do 11 o'clock tomorrow, Kelly. We could do a four-hour marathon. Why not? We're just, we're just Why don't you guys just hours. stay on all day? Nice wrap-up for us on a <laughs> Friday off. Press the clown. Four hours. Four do the hours whole, you know, just stay the whole day, man. <laughs> Just, just ramble on whatever just take comes off, to our heads. Take off everything that's on there, you know, and just like go crazy, you know, do the marathon. You no mercy. Marathon. It's like programming, live programming without mercy. Fun. Okay, yeah, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> Fundraising for AMI. Make it stop, man. Make it stop. Uh, on tomorrow's <laughs> show, the Friday news panel gets together to debate and discuss some of the big issues of the week, including the agreement by RBC to purchase HSBC and what it means for bank customers going forward. And we'll also examine the unusual protests we've been seeing in China where people are speaking out against COVID-19 restrictions. And the panel will wonder whether there's more here than meets the eye. Entertainment critic Michael McNeely is reviewing the Steven Spielberg director's flick, The Fablemans, and Karen McKay from the Center for Equitable Library Access will give us her feature selections in observance of this Saturday being International Day for Disabled Persons. Someday, I think there's going to be books, well, there's going to be books written on the change in personalities that humans under, underwent post-COVID uh, pandemic. 
Yeah. There are so yep. many different things and changes in the way people deal with things now. Um, mm-hmm. I, and again, I'm not just talking anger. I'm not I, the fears sure. and things like that. Uh, you, you know, depression. Um, of course, we, we understand that, and there'll be lots of material, mm-hmm. uh, especially to help us hopefully get through. But mm-hmm. some of the things that right now we're seeing, well, that's kind of different. That that's not a community that would speak out. What's happening? Yeah. So very interesting, and, and I think that that's what I forecast. Not not that I'm some expert, yeah. but uh, it, it would seem because we're we're asking these questions. Well, that's a little different for that community, sure. and and hey, people speaking up. What's this about? What's behind it? So, Paul, we'll look forward to that conversation tomorrow on Now with Dave Brown. Take care, Kelly. Thank you, sir. Uh, their show nine a.m. in the morning on AMI TV, also available as a podcast. Ramya, speaking of podcasts, anything particular you want to shout out for today's show that people should go back on? And I'll tell you what I'll do. Uh, Before the new year, this is the last time I'll ask you this. Oh, wow. What a promise. Thank you. (laughs) We were talking earlier with Tatiana. She was a choreographer for uh, the Nutcracker happening in Toronto with the Toronto Ballet. I thought it was a wonderful conversation. She described the... Just her love for the classic Nutcracker story, the the ballet, um, her passion towards classical ballet and what that means to her and to all the other people who come out to enjoy that um, production this time of year. And it was just really nice to hear how much she includes and um, is trying her best at diversity as well as one of the main people putting this production together in Toronto. And always wonderful for people to be able to have those things that we consider comfort, whether it's the music of the Nutcracker, maybe seeing that performance is, is that thing for you. Ramya, thank you very much. Um, speak to you again down the road. Yes, it's always a fun time, Kels. Enjoy next week. You betcha. Brock Richardson will be sitting in next week with me on the program. We'll also get uh, Danielle McLaughlin in here a little bit. And Margaret Weldon sits in tomorrow. We thank Matt Agnew, of course, our senior producer, who has been teching the program this week for us. On the show tomorrow, John Beeler informs us of a massive Twitter leak exposing over five... 0.4 million accounts. We'll discuss it tomorrow. The Blind Square app has added a trail in Niagara Falls to make the Nature Trail accessible for the blind and partially sighted community. Karen McGee, she's got all that information for us. Also, Margaret Weldon will host the Friday Buzz when she's here. Uh, a popular fantasy audiobook series has charmed its way up to a billion hours of listening. I'm checking that, folks. Did I say that? Yeah, that's right. Ryan Huey, he's got the scoop on the chatty bookshelf for us. Let's get the conversation recaps and comment on segments from the past week on Cut for Time. And reporter Grant Hardy will get us started as he brings the latest lifestyle headlines to us. Margaret and I will meet you back here at 2 p.m. Eastern tomorrow. Okay, folks, I'm waving at you. Take care. Is there really such thing as an ideal temperature? Yes, I know all about, you know, some people like it hotter, some people like it colder. And I think there's some science on women prefer it a bit higher than men and all this other stuff. But anyways, what I'm talking about here is, is there really an ideal all day, every day temperature for you? Because sometimes I'm like, oh, it's hot. I'm going to open a window or turn down the heat or take my sweater off. And then it's chillier and chillier and chillier. Now I'm too cold. I think I'm going to 
close that window and turn up the heat and maybe just a thin cardigan can go on. And then it's too hot. You get it, right? So that's what I'm wondering about. Is there really something that we can say is comfortable all the time, no matter what, and is good for sleeping as well as being up as well as hanging out on the computer for hours at a time? You know, if there is such a thing, I haven't found it yet. Have you? Hi, I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor.